Well, hey, this is your old friend Bill. Whenever I find myself in Davis, I'm busy putting the fun in fundraising. But when I'm not, I always listen to KDVS 90.3 FM. And you should, too. Go Aggies! This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're going to, I think, uh, dispense with any lengthy interviews on today's program and focus in on current events. We've had a lot of current events we wanted to go into in the past few weeks, and the pile is getting larger and larger, and I think we need to debulk and um, bring you up to date on what we think are the important items circulating out in the news media. Let us start off today's program uh, citing a few emails. We got one last week from our good friend, Dr. Andy Jones. Uh, no one has been a better friend of this program than KDVS's own Dr. Andy. He sent us an email noting that he liked our pure comedy bits of uh, last week where we were citing the immortal Mr. Dave Barry. I think particularly his comment about men and women's differences in regards to their tolerance of dirt um, was a classic, particularly his line that, uh, that a man can descend into the New York subway system in order to clean it using a bottle of Windex and a single paper towel and emerge 25 minutes later weary but satisfied with a job well done. <laughs> it's going to be one of the classics of recent Dave Barry columns. But another email I want to, uh, to go with was um, from a new correspondent, Martha. This is apparently a comparison made of diary entries between a man and a woman. Her diary entry goes as follows. Saturday I thought he was acting strange. We had made plans to meet and have a drink. I was shopping with my friends all day long, so I thought he was upset at the fact that I was a bit late, but he made no comment. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he kept so silent. I asked him what was wrong. He said nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said it had nothing to do with me and not to worry. On the way home, I told him that I loved him. He simply smiled and kept driving. I don't know why he didn't say I love you too. When we got home, I felt as if I'd lost him. He just sat there and watched TV, so distant and absent. Finally, I went to bed. 10 minutes later, he came to the bed and to my surprise, responded to my caresses and we made love. But I felt that he was distracted, his thoughts somewhere else. I decided I must confront him with the situation, but he'd fallen asleep. I started crying, and I cried until I too fell asleep. I don't know what to do. I'm almost sure that his thoughts are with someone else. His diary entry. Well, the 49ers lost, but at least I got laid. And uh, we also got an email from Jennifer asking us why we delve into all this sexist kind of humor. Um, I don't know, Jennifer. It just cracks me up. 
All right, news items. Sacramento Bee, November 14th. Publisher gets final word. McJob stays. The 11th edition of Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, published in June, defined a McJob as a low-paying job that requires little skill and provides little opportunity for advancement. McDonald's chief executive, Jim Cantulopo, called the definition a slap in the face to the 12 million people who work in the restaurant industry and demanded that Merriam-Webster dish up something more flattering. But the dictionary publisher said it stands by the accuracy and appropriateness of its definition. Incidentally, McJob is similarly defined by the American Heritage Dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary, and Webster's Dictionary, published by Random House. And I think you know by now how much we love the state of Texas on this program. Dallas item. A Dallas couple who took snapshots of their baby breastfeeding were arrested after the photo lab called police. The parents were charged with lewd exhibition of a portion of the female breast and inducing a child to engage in sexual conduct. The charges were dropped, but the couple's two children were taken by child welfare officials and have not been returned home. Although I must confess, this comes from The Week magazine, and they've been burned before by some of these uh, urban legends, as, as we talked about with Lisa on last week's program. We're going to try to run that one down and see whether it's legit. Uh, and much as I enjoy Texas bashing, we do want to be fair. Uh, now, who doesn't love a dismissive review? This is one that I think Dr. Andy, being that he does teach English, um, may especially like a fine bit of nasty writing in the review of Dr. Seuss's The Cat in the Hat. This one comes from John Anderson in Newsday, reviewing Dr. Seuss, The Cat in the Hat, as, quote, perhaps the worst holiday movie ever made, unquote. Inflating a slender children's picture book into a 73-minute live-action film can't be easy, but the creative team behind this monstrosity met the challenge with heaps of sexual and scatological humor, and a scene in which the star feline, hanging from the ceiling like a piñata, takes a baseball to the crotch. If the producers had dug up Ted Geisel's body and hung it from a tree, they couldn't have desecrated the man more, said Ty Burr in the Boston Globe. Beginning with a lazy performance from its pampered headliner, this cat represents everything corrupt, bloated, and wrong with mainstream movies. Mike Myers' cat makeup is convincing enough, but the comedian does little more than abuse his own Austin Powers and Saturday Night Live routines. Owen Gleiberman, writing in Entertainment Weekly, said, Apparently, Myers thought it was a clever idea to turn the great Geisel's troublemaking cat into the worst nightclub spritzler of 1958. In other words, he's a furry version of Rip Taylor, a walking, talking, vaudeville idiot box. They gave it one star. All right, a couple news items worth, uh, worth mentioning here. Boone County, Indiana. You know, we've talked a bit about a voting, uh, voting mischief with voting machines coming on board with the Help America Vote Act in the wake of Election 2000, the, uh, the stealing of the presidential election in Florida. Uh, well, apparently a new high-tech computer voting machine in Indiana counted 144,000 votes in the election for Boone County. There's just one problem, though. There were fewer than 19,000 eligible voters. 
Yes, remember we mentioned a few weeks back the um, the three supervisors in a race in Texas, all of whom got 18,181 votes. Three in a row got 18181. I think we need to be a little bit worried about the upcoming election 2004. I expect to be talking to investigative journalist Jerry Polakoff uh, on this very topic in the weeks to come. Remember how we were going to elect Republicans to balance the budget? The numbers are in. Government spending jumped 12.5% last year, capping a 27% two-year increase, the largest in 20 years. Uh, Much of that came from homeland security improvements and military expenses in Iraq, but spendings also rose for domestic programs such as transportation and agriculture. Oh, and we'll have plenty to say on this show before it's over about about that sort of thing. Um, Item about Halliburton in uh, in the B this week we'll need to get to. But first, let's do some of the miscellaneous items we, we're so intent upon going through. Uh, statistics show that the productivity of U.S. companies shot up 9.4% in the third quarter of this year, the largest jump in 20 years. The Labor Department reported this. And, of course, so there was some stock rallying and a lot of uh, ideas that maybe this means that the economy is finally turning around, which would be very convenient for these, this election year. However... The way productivity is measured means that if your actual production goes up one millionth of one percent and you put 20 percent of the workforce out of work, you then see a 20 percent, whatever it is, 20 something percent rise in productivity. It's something of a questionable statistic. Despite that, optimists at uh, economy.com are saying the economic expansion that's now unfolding will be solid and durable. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, I think the Bureau of Meaningless Statistics is going to be cranking up into high gear as, uh, as election 2004 continues to unfold. L.A. Times poll last week. Among Americans who drink wine with dinner, the Democrats enjoy a 7 percentage point lead over President Bush, no matter whom they nominate. Americans who drink beer at dinner, on the other hand, back Bush over any Democrat by 23 percentage points. Here's a legal puzzler. The New Hampshire Supreme Court has ruled that a lesbian affair does not constitute adultery. Apparently in a divorce case, the judges ruled that since a wife's sexual relationship with another woman does not include, quote, intercourse, unquote, it did not meet the official definition of adultery. Legal scholars expressed surprise, saying that most Americans would consider their spouse's sexual relationship with either man or woman an equivalent betrayal. I think we're going to go have to ask Shelley, who, uh, who does the Fringe Sister program, uh, Public Affairs here Wednesday mornings. Um, um, what's the deal? What's the deal with that? I'd like some input on that. And uh, comedian Stephen Wright was quoted in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel recently saying, I think it's wrong that only one company manufactures the game Monopoly which I believe, if memory serves me correct, is Parker Brothers. But uh, that's a perfect segue into the, uh, the Bees article that was just mentioned briefly here. Halliburton's Iraq gas deal on eye-opener from Don Van Atta from the New York Times, as repeated in the Bee. The U.S. government, which, by the way, is you and I, the taxpayer, is paying the Halliburton company an average of $2.64 a gallon to import gasoline and other fuel to Iraq from Kuwait, more than twice what others are paying to truck in Kuwaiti fuel, documents show. Halliburton receives 26 cents a gallon to cover overhead costs 
according to uh, its statistics. Now, Republicans Henry uh, representatives Henry Waxman and uh, John Dingell criticized Halliburton some time ago uh, for the, for its inflated gasoline prices at great cost to the U.S. taxpayer. Was how they put it. Well, Halliburton said they were making just a razor thin uh, profit margin on this whole thing bringing in 61 million gallons of fuel from Kuwait and about 179 million gallons from Turkey for a total cost of more than $383 million. Independent experts who reviewed Halliburton's percentage of its importation contract said that the company's 26 cents charge for each gallon imported from Kuwait appears to be extremely high. Philip uh, Verliger, a California oil economist, said, I've never seen anything like this in my life. That's a monopoly premium. That's the only term to describe it. Every logistical firm or oil subsidiary in the United States and Europe would salivate to have that sort of contract. I think this stuff raises some valid questions about war profiteering, about a war that was not necessary, about a war that was supposedly something that we had to get into because of an imminent danger from supposed weapons of mass destruction. Um, The neocons wanted a war with Iraq long before September 11th, 2001. They've gotten that now, and um, Vice President Richard Cheney is supposedly no longer affiliated with Halliburton, but I think this just raises some very dicey issues about war profiteering from a company that he ran that is now profiting from you and I, the taxpayer, paying two sixty four a gallon. By the way, the article mentions the fact that the price of oil, the price of gasoline in Iraq, is 5 to 15 cents a gallon. So they're not making money on the back end by selling that gasoline. They're making money on the front end by you and I, the taxpayer, contracting for them to supply it at an inflated price. I think this is war profiteering, no matter how you look at it. And, uh, and it shouldn't be tolerated. Um... I would also direct you to the Atlantic Monthly, the article about John Kerry. John Kerry is on the cover, and it talks about his tour of duty in Vietnam. John Kerry went to Vietnam, and I really recommend this article to anyone interested in uh, how warfare can go wrong, how, how what we were doing in Vietnam was just crazy. And the article closed with a quote from Kerry. He, Kerry, of course, became very much involved in veterans against the war. And um, the last thing the article says, I think you should hear, it is as follows. And it gives some insight into John Kerry's thinking, which I, which I respect a great deal. He describes an, an attack where he was uh, basically diving into the, into the dirt with his M16 in the muck and was just waiting for the firing to stop and to get away. I just lay in the ditch not firing because I wanted to save ammo because I couldn't see who I was firing at. And I thought about what was happening in New York at that very moment. And if people really felt that what I was doing was something worthwhile, well, they went down to Schraff's and had another ice cream sundae. Or while some fat little old man who made another million in the past month off defense contracts was charging another $100 call girl to his expense account. And then when the shooting stopped, I came back to where I was. Powerful words from a future United States senator. The article quotes extensively from John Kerry, who was a a 24-year-old Yale graduate and a U.S. Navy patrol boat skipper in Vietnam. Kerry describes how at one point, or the article describes how at one point, mercenaries hired by the United States were taken on board for a mission to go and supposedly uh, fight 
the enemy. Kerry had a hard time with this. They were basically doing these patrol boats up and down the Mekong River shooting at people, and he was wondering what the heck we were doing there, uh, engendering a lot of um, hostility and hatred from the populace for the fact that American forces were creating this swath of destruction. Well, the article describes how they took an old man prisoner to guide them out and decided afterwards that uh, one of his advisors said, I wouldn't be surprised if our prisoner tries to escape or if he falls on some punji stakes. And uh, as I guess these mercenaries took the man off the boat, Kerry found out later, they stabbed him, carved him up, and left him with a note of warning to the Viet Cong. Perhaps he was a Viet Cong sympathizer, perhaps he was not. This sort of thing sickened John Kerry, as it should sicken, I think, all of us. But I must say, I'm, uh, I was very disturbed when the Massachusetts senator voted to back the war resolution to attack Iraq. He's been struggling for months to explain his stance to Democratic voters who are angry with this preemptive strike. And uh, for this reason, he has lost ground to the current frontrunner, anti-war candidate Howard Dean, the former Vermont governor. Kerry, of all people, ought to know better. Ought to know about, uh, you know, a short man with a defense contract, as he said in his own writing, charging another $100 call girl. I mean, I think this, unfortunately, is, uh, strikes very close to home in what's currently going on in terms of people making money off an unnecessary war. Uh, Robert Greenwald, the producer who was on last week's program, uh, in his documentary, Uncovered, The Whole Truth About the Iraq War, has an interview with Rand Beers. Rand Beers was a um, National Security Council advisor who quit the Bush administration to go to work for John Kerry. Beers said he thought Iraq was an ill-conceived and poorly executed strategy, and that uh, in describing the White House planners, said that it's a very closed, small, controlled group. This is an administration that determines what it thinks and then sets about to prove it. There's almost a religious kind of certainty. There's no curiosity about opposing points of view. It's very scary. There's kind of a ghost agenda. The administration is going out of its way to uh, avoid referring to the current conflict in Iraq as a guerrilla war. The guerrilla war in Vietnam didn't go very well for the United States. And, um, well, it's, it's a description that we, they're loath to go to. Interesting article, however, in Harper's Magazine, the current issue of Harper's, about Ahmed Chalabi. That was by Charles Glass, Chronicles of a War Foretold. This actually comes from the July issue. It describes what was going on with Chalabi running around in Iraq as the war commenced. There was a very famous quote in Vietnam about one of these search-and-destroy missions where they went out and wiped out a village, just basically burned it to the ground. And uh, one of the news reporters quoted the military man directing the operation as saying, we had to destroy that village to save it. That doesn't appear to be just a thing of the past. In this article about Ahmed Chalabi, a man named Francis Brooke showed up at the uh, Chalabi camp on March 9th. He was a representative of the INC, the Iraqi National Congress in Washington. He's a Virginian and a Christian fundamentalist, and a man who's apparently well-connected with the neoconservatives. He was quoted as saying, as far as I'm concerned, Syria's next. When they say Pearl and these guys like Wolfowitz, Wolfowitz want to get Syria, they're right. These guys are my friends, and I know. As the actual hot war was looming in Iraq, 
Brooke hanging around the Chalabi camp was quoted, and I believe accurately, by the newsmen as saying, he would support the elimination of Saddam even if every single Iraqi were killed in the process. Quote, I'm coming from a different place from you, he says in a soft southern drawl one hears from preachers and con men. I believe in good and evil. The man, that man is absolute evil and must be destroyed. We had to destroy that village to save it. It's apparently not a sentiment that um, was exclusive to Vietnam. We need to take a break. I think we definitely need to take a break. We're getting a bit heavy here. And um, we'll return with some other, uh, in some cases, lighter items after this break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Mm -hmm. 